Hello and welcome back to the Library Talks podcast, the Sutton Libraries podcast and to series three. I'm your host Alfie from the digital engagement team at Sutton Cultural Services and this week I was joined by national poetry librarian Chris McCabe. Uh, Chris's eclectic work is not limited to poetry, he's also produced fiction and non-fiction, uh, drama, visual arts uh, and he was shortlisted for the Ted Hughes Award in 2013. He's released several poetry collections, uh, including the Hutton Inquiry, Zeppelins, The Restructure, uh, Speculatrix, and The Triumph of Cancer. He's also released two novels, uh, and his non-fiction work, which we talk about more in this episode, concerns an ongoing hunt for great forgotten poets that are buried in London cemeteries. Chris works at the National Poetry Library um, in the South Bank Centre, and he was kind enough to invite me to the library for this conversation when we recorded this episode, the centre was actually in the middle of the children's festival, which meant uh, quiet spaces were at a premium. So we decamped to one of the Royal Festival Hall's dressing rooms, uh, complete with grand piano. Uh, as you'll hear, however, the quiet didn't last very long, as someone in the next dressing room began a piano rehearsal, which I hope will provide a soothing backdrop to the conversation, rather than be too much of a distraction. I'll be back at the end for more information on the rest of this series and the upcoming Sutton Steams Ahead events. But for now, my chat with Chris McCabe. And I've noticed that you cover quite a lot of a real diverse range of topics and themes and even um, mediums. Yeah. Uh, is that something that you were keen on from the start or did it just kind of happen by accident? Or? Yeah, well, I started off writing poetry and uh, quickly identifying as, as a poet, um, loving a wide range of literature. You know, there was a long time where poetry was the only thing I was writing and the only thing I wanted to write. Um, I think what happened was um, I became quite aware of how almost borderless poetry is that as, as an art form in itself it, it naturally spills over into different ways of writing um, so I found myself writing fiction which didn't feel that much different from poetry experimental fiction that was using a lot of similar techniques um, so that's what's happened really where I, I've continue to experiment with different uh, forms of the novel, non-fiction, some theatre work. Uh, but my poetry is also kind of taken on some of the aspects of, of fiction as well. I'm increasingly interested in, in verse novels and, and poems that contain characters, um, which is quite a relief because uh, it means I don't need to be coming up with new experience all the time mm -hmm. to, to, to be writing. Um, so you mentioned like the lack of constraints, I guess, in poetry. Um, I, was, I think it's something we've talked about in the podcast before, but um, I'm most interested in what makes each medium kind of distinct, I guess, and what makes it unique from other mediums. Do you think mm -hmm. there is something about poetry in that sense that kind of can't that other mediums maybe can't um, can't achieve or can't um, express in the same way? Yeah, there is, and I'm probably going to, you know, contradict myself already, but that's that's okay because 
poetry contains multitudes. I think it was Walt Whitman who said that. It's full of contradictions. Um, I think, that, you know, poetry is the place the, re the rest of the language can't get to. Um, you know, it's a very special art form in, in that sense. You know, people call for a poem for funerals and weddings because, the, you know, the rest of the language system, if you like, just can't get to the place that, that poetry can get to. Um, within that, it has a number of, you know, unique uh, facets. And the most pronounced for me is the musicality of the language. Um, and that's what distinguishes uh, poetry from, from other um, types of creative writing, often, but not always. is It's a bit like a, a dance, you know, if somebody walks across a room, you know, you think they're walking to get somewhere, but if they walk across the room and uh, habitually lift up the right leg, you think they're doing a bit of a dance uh, for its own sake, because they want to, and that's that's what poetry brings brings to the dance floor, if you like. It brings movement and play for its own sake. It's interesting that you talk about these, I suppose, moments in life where it's kind of accepted that the best ex way to express or mark that is poetry, like a wedding or funeral. Um, it's interesting that that's even recognised by people that maybe outside of those events would have no interest or dealing with poetry in their normal lives. It's yeah. kind of this universal acceptance I guess that it can express things that maybe can't be expressed in other forms yeah yeah absolutely it's a, it's a bit of a crisis art sometimes poetry and in fact T.S. Eliot you know talked about how he kind of worked on translations to keep himself ready for when uh, he described it as the, the, the well-oiled fire engine of verse needed to kick in for a crisis mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I think you know it exists in people's lives in that way. You know they they don't know they need it until they need it, and mm -hmm. and there's a poem that that can you know just just do exactly or say exactly what needs to be said. Um, and to go back to the nonfiction, um, I think nonfiction and poetry are often seen as very distinct. I think your most of your nonfiction has been books rather than. Poetry is there a tradition or a relationship between poetry and non-fiction that isn't maybe recognised widely? That's a, a really good question. Um, I mean, it's a, I probably can answer it best for what what I'm doing with non-fiction because the the gap between those books and poetry is is non-existent in a way because most of my non-fiction books uh, walking around. London's uh, Victorian cemeteries, trying to find uh, forgotten poets, mm -hmm. overlooked poets, poets that may well have been known in the lifetime or not, and finding the burial sites and um, finding their poems and, and giving them a fresh reading. Um, so my nonfiction is, you know, full of all these. Uh, um, lost poets, if you like, or the work of those lost poets, um, and also in those books, you know, I do experiment with different forms as well. Um, I've written four books uh, in that series, uh, all published by Pen in the Margins, and you know, people can find out a lot more about them online. Um, each one of those books has a different form within it that I've brought to that particular book. Uh, in one book, it's a journal. 
uh, approach in another book it's it's fiction um so i do really like to 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 play around with with where the edges may or may not be for any particular form and did you set out knowing kind of the i guess the figures that you were looking for or was it real genuine sort of discovery for you as well um so uh, it started because I was commissioned. I, I was—I should just say—you were in the Royal <laughs> Festival Hall, in the dressing room, um, and uh, what a lovely, quiet space. But we're adjacent to another dressing room with a piano in, um, and yeah, someone's tickling the ivories. Yeah, if it were, uh, was any inclination that um, us claiming to be in the sort of bowels of the uh, of the centre weren't true, we, yeah. you can probably <laughs> tell now that we are indeed. I, 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 Absolutely, but it's quite interesting because South Bank Centre wants to make more of the backstage is known to the mm. public and what artists do and musicians and everything. So this is a classic uh, example. Like we, you can't find a quiet space without someone. Uh, no, I mean I was surprised when we walked in to this dressing room to see a grand piano in the corner. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah uh, luckily I can't play the piano, so that one's gonna, <laughs> that, that one's going to be left. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I was commissioned actually um, uh, by a wonderful project called Curious, which is a site-specific or was a site-specific art trail set in West Norwood Cemetery in South London. And they commissioned artists every year, about 20 artists, to make new work in response to the cemetery. And then people would visit and see all these art exhibits in the cemetery itself. They'd never asked a poet before. And um, I was, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do, like how I wanted to approach this commission. Um, and really what I realised was that I was more becoming more interested in who the other poets were that were buried in the cemetery rather than what I might do as a, as a living poet. Um, so I, I, I thought, I wonder if I can find any for a start. I, I started to find the poets uh, with the help of the, the cemetery people. Um, I found about a dozen poets and um, I made these uh, stones which had just one phrase from one of these dead poets' poems on mm. and placed them you know, next to the grave or as close to the grave as we thought, the, you know, where the grave might be, basically. Um, and I, that was that project, you know, just left the stones. I think people took them, you know, I was quite interested in what people wanted to do with them uh, but then I realised after I had all this material and I thought oh, I've got a blog post here I'll write a blog post about all these different poets I wrote a blog post and thought this is more than a, a mm. blog post this feels like a book um, and that's where the series um, began and four books later um, I've written about South London East London and ready to um, move move across the city to the west Did you find any difference in I suppose the kind of life and work of the people that you were finding based on where they were was there a kind of I think maybe the demographic um, traditional demographic kind of distinctions of different parts of London mm. has kind of been erased in more recent years but was that still something is it something that you could see in what you found out about these people yeah definitely um you know, in South London, um, in West Norway, for example, it's known as the Millionaire Cemetery. You know, it's, it's big palatial uh, memorials. 
um, you know, Tate is buried there, the Sugar Merchant, uh, Reuters, you know, all these people. And poetry is easier to find for that reason. You know, it's on the, the headstones. Yeah. Uh, the stories are kept. Um, and, the you know, the, the reason for that as well is, of course, the poets who are from more privileged backgrounds are better set up to be remembered in, you know, after the dead. When I moved um, to Tower Hamlet Cemetery, you know, in East London, there you've got a really, really working class area, really working class community. And it, I could only find half the amount of poets mm. because, you know, that's not because people weren't writing, it's because um, they never um, had the opportunity to to land their poems through publication, you know, through broadcast, whatever it might be, in ways that would make them e easy to be found later. So class absolutely plays into this. Yeah, I mean, I think there is probably a perception of, um, maybe less so now with kind of spoken word and sort of musical um, iterations of poetry, but definitely historically this dis uh, perception of, Poetry has a very kind of upper class pursuit, I guess, but um, clearly that wasn't the case. But I suppose the reason that distinction exists is almost entirely to do with the ability to have your work either live on through publication or literally etched into your yeah. headstone. That actually does make quite a difference to your work's kind of lifespan, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, not everyone everyone knows someone is writing it. And I think that's you know, often been the case, you know, through history. Um, but the chance of breaking through, you know, to it's much more difficult to be read after your death if you weren't read at all before you died. Not impossible, and we know many examples like Emily Dickinson, you know, who uh, broke that, um, that, that kind of trajectory. But as a rule, that is true. And there's one poet in T Tower Hamlets, um, who comes to mind based on what you're asking there? Um, his name was William Spring Onions. Right. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. He, he's known as the, uh, the, the the court poet. He was basically an alcoholic, um, uh, you know, criminal, really petty criminal. He was arrested possibly up to 500 times by wow. the East London Police for one thing or another. Um, until he gave up drink at about the age of 65 and he replaced drinking tea, uh, sorry, uh, beer with tea and he, he drank uh, 20 cups of tea a day. So a certain type of personality is <laughs> probably emerging. Yeah, yeah, ab <laughs> absolutely. But, but his success as a poet was based on a, 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 on a bit of genius really because he started to write poems uh, to fill in the, you know, the, the gap left with the alcohol. And he would go down to the local courts and he'd, he'd read poems to the court magistrate. And if it was a quiet day at court, he would read the poem. And of course, all the journalists around London were there waiting to cover whatever stories would have come up. And if there was nothing else being recorded, they would write, you know, William Spring Onions turned up at court again <laughs> oh, yesterday. Wow. And he recited his latest poem and it would get published. Um, so... He is probably one of the 
widest read London poets of all time and someone I could write about with loads of information because um, you only have to look through the newspapers. And it's, mm. it's, Were they ever uh, collected or was it just purely through newspaper reports? You, uh, n- never a book, um, just through newspapers. Uh, occasionally he comes up um, in popular culture, for example, um, he gets a mention on, on the on the Jack the Ripper website. Right. Um, for absolutely no reason at all, just because he, <laughs> just because he was a criminal and, and Ripperologist, loved to throw another name into the mix. But a lot of your work is quite political, and I wondered what do you, what, how do you think of as poetry as a sort of political act? How can it function as that? And are are there any shortcomings of poetry trying to function in that way? It depends where you live in the world. Um, in different parts of the world that, that, that changes you know um, you know for example in uh, the Rohingya the Rohingya poets Rohingya language poets um, they've been uh, you know pushed out of Myanmar into, into the camps um, the, the, the the Rohingya poets have been seen by the community as real um, figureheads you know they they articulate how people feel they're given a particular special status by people. They're seen as figures of hope. Um, and uh, what, what's happened uh, in Myanmar is that, you know, the, the, the government have really stamped down on those poets and mm. some of them have been killed, many of them imprisoned. Um, and, you know, it's a dangerous act to be a, a poet in, in, that, in that situation. Um, Clearly, that's not something we're used to in the UK. Uh, that's, you know, been the way for a long, long time. Um, I think there's something about poetry, though, that those in power don't particularly like. You know, the, for me, the power of poetry politically is that it kind of lives outside capitalism mm-hmm. um, as much as any art form can. Um, and that gives it a kind of freedom to, you know, say what it wants, to be where it wants, to act as it wants. Um, it doesn't sit within, um, you know, the regular received um, systems and processes that the country's based on and, and people in power, you know, really, really like. Um, and it can be a really maverick act and it's very closely linked to, to free thinking. And of course, it's very inventive with language. And um, I, I think, you know, people in power don't particularly like not to understand what is running through other people's minds. Uh, and poetry is a great, great vehicle for, um, for thought, um, for shared conversation, uh, and also, you know, for people to think for themselves. And poets are very, very good at that. Just to bring it back to where we are currently, um, could you tell me a bit more about the National Poetry Library, kind of, I guess, a little bit about the history, what it is, uh, what's it trying to achieve, um, and I suppose what it was set up to to address? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's a good question for, for right at this very moment because it's the National Poetry Library's 70th birthday this year. Uh, it was set up in 1953 by the Arts Council of England and it was specifically to offer a place for 
um, for people to be in touch with what was happening in poetry. Um, we've got, got to imagine a world before the internet, before social media, uh, before YouTube, um, where you know you, it was impossible just to you know have access to the latest publications, the latest magazines, and everything um, you know through, through browsing on your phone or whatever. Um, so the, this library was set up. Uh, it was opened by T.S. Eliot, um, who, who made a speech, and we know he was very, very big on libraries. You know, he loved libraries and the idea of what libraries could achieve. Um, and that was the beginnings of the National Poetry Library. Um, its aim is was and is still to collect everything that's published in the UK. Um, what publication has looked like over that time has changed considerably. You know, it was it was 100% print back then. Now we have uh, huge audio collections, uh, you know, everything from vinyl to, to, to digital, um, historic VHS, you know, every medium that's been in existence over the last 70 years is kind of being contained in the collection. Um, but our aim, you know, through all those, those changes and all that time is still to put people in touch with poetry that can be meaningful for them. Um, poetry is not the same art form as it was in 1953. You know, we're much better served thinking about poetries in the in the in the plural, because we know some people really want to hear poetry to listen to it. They might want to go to some online events and hear poetry, or or go to a slam night. Um, other people still feel very dedicated to print and you know want, want to read the way through books from start to end. Um, there are other people who are into the, the burgeoning forms like Instagram poetry, a wonderful hybrid form of you know visual language and, and text, which is very uh, immediate um, and exists in the very specific space of Instagram. Um, so all these things uh, are possible. Of course, some people love it all and, you know, want to know exactly what's going on all the time and have more, more, more all the time because poetry is quite, quite addictive. Um, so we, we open the doors uh, six days a week uh, in the Royal Festival Hall um, and anyone's welcome for, for a, a specialist collection of its kind. It's quite unusual that we have the National Collection of Poetry but you don't need to book, you don't need to make an appointment. You can just walk through the doors and start to browse. You can ask the staff a question um, and just really just start to get involved. Uh, and, and additionally, digi digital is, of course, um, just like we're doing this podcast now, you know, is um, a really important way that we can reach more people and get, get poetry into their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's a real kind of, well, from some people, real fear in other um, kind of art spaces about new technology, for one. Um, and kind of what does this mean for, for example, in film, there's a lot of people who are really sort of um, tearing their hair out about things like TikTok and saying this is going to change the way people um, see film. And it's kind of almost this apocalyptic kind of conversations um, that people are having. Some people, of course, then seeing that as an opportunity and something new to engage with. Um, that's clearly true in poetry as well. Is that something that you kind of touched on it there? You're obviously looking to collect as much as you can. 
are you kind of also trying to actively engage with new kind of technologies and new types of poets as well yeah absolutely um you know it's been uh, and and continues to be one of the most exciting areas of poetry um you know how language and how we interact with language is changing as as the world changes um you know just really one obvious example is you know when i first got into poetry nobody touched words on the screen with you know with their fingers in the way that we do we do now um you know language was something that was on a page or on a screen but you didn't you didn't uh, pick it up with your fingertips and put it somewhere else on a, on a screen um, or, or, or somewhere else on a tablet, whatever it might be. And, you know, this has begun to change the way, um, well, first of all, how people are interacting with poetry. And there's a whole new generation coming through for which the art form um, and, and, and all literature to an extent is becoming a really tactile, malleable material. Um, and I think it creates a reality where language is closer to our bodies for, for better or worse. And it's something that can be shaped and, uh, and manipulated, you know, in a kind of Play-Doh fashion. Um, and a lot of, you know, uh, maybe not a lot of poets, but there are definitely some interesting poets who are beginning, you know, to explore what that malleability a text in the hand looks like and sometimes that's through great uh, new digital projects um digital poetics which is you know a recognized field now but sometimes it's actually going the other way and it's poets who are making things um out of plastics and uh, and wood um and responding to the digital world in a different way um but I would say this, you know, the digital world has create, created uh, a physicality around the creation of poetry. And you mentioned um, things like slam nights as well. Um, and I mean, I certainly get the, the, the impression that kind of poetry nights and slam poetry and young people getting into poetry and this kind of um, scene of live poetry and communal kind of um, events is kind of on the increase it seems mm. seems to be uh, whether that's just being again through maybe things like social media it's being kind of put out there more but it does seem to be in pretty rude health at the moment um is there any sense of resistance to that within certain circles i guess as much as there would be a, a kind of establishment within the world of, of poetry w would there be a resistance to that as a sort of less traditional form I think what once that was the case, you know, um, t 20 years ago when I was, you know, first arriving uh, at the National Poetry Library, quite new to London, um, the, you know, there was a divide, um, you know, there was, there was um, a lot of, you know, negativity, I guess, uh, around uh, new kinds of poetries, whatever they might be. Um, I, I just think that argument's gone now. You know, it's um, uh, that's been made. You know, it's been made a super valid form of poetry by amazing 
poets who can perform with, without a page in front of them and can entertain and can deliver, you know, in, in rooms above pubs or wherever it might be. Um, but they're also winning prizes, you know, like the American Dennis Smith. Um, you know, we had Dennis Reed, Reed here when they won the forward prize a few years ago. Um, and, you know, they had to adjust the mic levels for Dennis, like when they, when they read, because, you know, the, the power of the voice was just beyond what they were used <laughs> to poets bringing to the stage. Um, and, you know, last year we had, had uh, Joel Taylor winning the T.S. Eliot Prize. Um, again, you know, a poet who's been on the slam, spoken word scene, whatever you want to call it, for many, many years, winning the most prestigious prize in the UK. So, you know, the 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 the, the, the arguments disappeared, really. Mm -hmm. It's just the, you, you, if you're a poet, you're a poet. You might work in diff diff one particular way. You might work in multiple different ways. But it's a very broad uh, church now, and it's all the better for it. Uh, there also seems to be a kind of resurgence of um, poetry and music, um, a sort of combination of poetry and music, um, which obviously has its roots, um, you know, going back a long way. And I know, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, people like Linton Kwesi Johnson, um, mm. but it certainly seems to be a big thing again um, in sort of popular music, certainly in a more sort of post-punk kind of arena. It's, it's very common. Um, do you do any work or any collections that focus on that kind of uh, combination of music and poetry together? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest uh, growth areas of the collection, bizarrely, in a way, is our vinyl collection. Mm. And I say bizarrely because we had this, you know, a historic collection of vinyl from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, it fell out of favour with the public. You know, people didn't want to borrow it because they didn't have record players at home anymore. Um, you know, the being hoarders at the library, of course, we kept hold of all this stuff. Um, and, you know, we noticed just before lockdown um, that more and more record labels were putting out poetry vinyl. Um, you know, Kenneth Kenneth Williams did a brilliant um, ensemble of poets um, uh, recorded at Abbey Road, which which came out on vinyl. Um, Roger Robinson, the poet, is who also is a musician, has been working on these really interesting dubstep type um, uh, vinyls. Um, you know, and you know, even outside of poetry, you only have to listen to someone like Radio Six, and you, you hear, you know, spoken words, spoken word. That's all it is. You know. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bands like Dry Cleaning. You know, it, yeah. it's really fantastic. Yeah, experimental stuff. Uh, and on the six seventieth, uh, rather seventieth, um, birthday of the of the library. Are there any kind of particular events or um, collections or anything sort of to mark that that you want to talk about? Yeah, so um, this summer we're holding our longest running festival at South Bank Centre, uh, Poetry International, and it was set up in 1967 by Ted Hughes um, to celebrate um, international poetry and the art of translation. Um, we haven't had the festival since 2019, 
uh, with, with the lockdowns and everything. So it's a really exciting moment for us in our seventieth year to be able to you know bring bring poets from around the world to to the stages um, to hear poetry in multiple different languages, um, and you know to to really hold up some of Ted Hughes's ideas about what um, a, a festival of this kind can do. He said um, poetry is a universal language in which we can all hope to meet. Um, so there's a real political dimension to what Ted Hughes had in mind. Um, and, and now more than everything, we need to hold these spaces where you know poets can come together um, to share poetry, to share language, um, and to you know really spotlight what that kind of artistic um, collaboration can can do for the world brilliant um and as is uh tradition on the the show now um we like to ask if there's free kind of particular books or collections that have made a a, a particular impact on you that you'd want to talk about um and, and share with us yeah absolutely um so I am going to start with my favourite book of all time, which for some reason I, I, I read or at least read through when I was 17. I don't know how uh, I, did, uh, I did that, but it stayed with me ever since and I've read it multiple times since, and that's Ulysses by James Joyce. Oh, yeah. Um, I absolutely love this book. Um, it, it's, a, it's a poem Yeah. In, in, in a very particular way. I can't imagine... Um getting to grips with that at 17 and I mean yeah it does need <laughs> as many revisits as you yeah. can give it really to uh, start making sense of it ab- absolutely um I mean, you know I, I think there was so much of it I did not grasp but I knew something was happening with language that I'd never seen before yeah. and it, it, it was that really just going with it um that that laid the foundations for a, a lot of poetry that I read later yeah. And you just get completely different things from it each time you kind of go back to it. Absolutely, yeah, it's bottomless. Um, he, Joyce said famously, about, I think about Finnegan's Wake, that mm. he'd give like, um, you know, uh, enough for the critics to do for the next 300 years or something like that. Well, I know there are um, reading groups for Finnegan's Wake um, who meet sort of once a week and each week they do a page. Yeah. And then over that week they sort of study the page and, and then next week it's the yeah. following page and <laughs> even then they're still kind of yeah still kind of getting to grips with it uh how much do you think your sort of environment um affects what something means to you because clearly that it does you know if you where you watch a film where you listen to music it kind of really does impact what you take from it is that would you say that's also the case reading something like like Ulysses yeah um I worked on a response to Ulysses a few years ago. I wrote a novel. This is how obsessed I've become in my life with this book. I wrote a novel set the day after Ulysses. Okay. Um, you know, so Stephen Dedalus wakes up with a hangover and it all <laughs> kind of goes from there. And I was interested to come back to digital. Like, what would, what would James Joyce do with experimentation in the digital age? You know, so it gave me a chance to, like, you know... Um, throw social media type experiments in there and, and that kind of thing um, and I went to Dublin quite a lot to write this book and to research um, the places that I read about so much and um, I took my 
copy that you know I've had since I was 17 to the top of the Martello Tower, mm-hmm. uh, where, where Ulysses begins. Um, and that, that was one of the most incredible like reading experiences of my life, you know, yeah. uh, to, to be in that space, not only where the novel begins, because you could do that with a lot of novels, you could go this way that the novel begins, but also where the novel begins and James Joyce actually stayed. Mm, yeah. You know, all these layers of history kind of overlap. Um, so, so absolutely, absolutely does, you know, um, make a difference. You know, it's a, probably a bit like Guinness tastes better in, in Dublin. You know, yeah. You, you, Ulysses definitely reads better yeah. in Dublin. Uh, so what's your second choice? Um, my second choice um, is uh, the collective works of William Blake. Um, now, that's quite a big book again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was thinking that in this desert island fashion, you know, if I'm going to be stuck there. Um, You've got plenty of time, yeah. Yeah, pl- plenty yeah. of time. Um, but even big books will become short books after a while. Yeah, true. But, but, but there's a real advantage to someone like Blake who, who's got a depth not only of language but of um, uh, of characters and plots and worlds that he, that he invented. And Blake's quite an interesting one for me because... Um, you know, I always liked the songs of innocence and experience, but when I got in my thirties, I, w- I really began to get Blake and these big long books. Um, I think it comes back to the idea of uh, of where literature and visual art and song can all meet and all merge. And Blake was an absolute luminary for that. Mm. You know, he was printing his own books. He was, um, you know, he was the first. Uh, comics book uh, writer in a way he, he had songs for his poems we don't know what the tunes are anymore but you know he definitely was allowing all these walls to collapse um, and I really just fell into all, all, all this stuff and became quite obsessed with it um, at, the, at the right time you know um, because it showed that poetry can be fiction and you know and poetry can um happily coexist with me with music as well is there anything particularly from blake that made a uh an impact on you that you would kind of pinpoint uh, any particular work of his yeah for sure um you know I, th- I think um those uh proverbs you know are really sure were, were a great kind of introduction to a great mind mm-hmm. um you know, we say things like never eat anything that's caught with a net or a trap. And you think this is years ahead of, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, vegetarianism, never mind veganism. Um, I, I, yeah. And then, you know, the, uh, I'd have to mention Jerusalem, you know, the big, the big epic novel, you know, with all his plates in it, these wonderful visual accompaniments. Um yeah, and I think Blake is having a, Blake's having many moments and is in many places at once at the same time, but it seems quite common now for me to like watch a Netflix series or something like that, and for, yeah. for Blake not only to be mentioned but sometimes to be a character. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, and your third choice. My third choice is um, more contemporary. I'm glad to say, because we can tease these books in the National Poetry Library collection um, f- the American 
poet Alice Notley. Um, uh, we were lucky to, to bring Alice Notley over to read for the library last year. Um, she lives in Paris now, so we, we brought her over for just the most incredible conversation um, and reading from one of her long books because she also works in this quite visionary tradition, um, which, um, you know, was kind of um, very hard to follow on, on a sense level. Uh, a book um, uh, that's full of characters um, and is very musical, but the audience completely went with it. Um, and, you know, she is someone who's got multiple unpublished books, which she tells me and told the audience at the time, you know, it's just a case of choosing which one comes out next, you mm. know, re reaching for it off the pile when the publisher's ready. Um, so she's, you know, um, well into her 70s now, but she's got many, many, many more books on the way, which is great. Is there any thing that she is kind of reluctant to publish or is it is it purely just it will it will all come around eventually yeah it's an interesting question um uh, sometimes she she picked picks something off the pile from the 70s mm. and I, it, now is the right moment for that thing yeah. to come out um she works every day she writes every day in a, a small apartment in paris so there's always new work being being added to that pile um and she works with many different publishers, so I imagine uh, she has the conversations with the publishers, finds out what they might be interested in, and that particular work, you know, sees the the light of day. But I, I do find that kind of um, voluminous um, propensity that some writers have, like Alice Notley, like Blake, really, really encouraging, you know, because um, both those writers have had particularly difficult lives as well, but somehow writing has given them uh, ballast and, and a structure um, and they just write through these problems um, often with increasingly um, vivid and wild uh, uh, imaginations um, and you know the, the work is is incredible when it lands brilliant uh, and just before we wrap up um, I just wanted to ask we sort of talked about libraries in general uh, a bit earlier on. Um, what kind of role did libraries play in your development, I guess, in maybe your younger life, but also as a writer? If I mean, if any, you can be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I can remember my first visit to a library as a really young boy. Um, it was my mum who, who, who took us, and I, I just remember the feeling of um, of kind of willful theft of being allowed to go away with these books and I think it stayed with me ever, ever since that thing of like oh my god it's okay to, to steal in this place um, that certainly set some kind of uh, pattern in my life um, <laughs> so um, the yeah the, the next libraries that played a big part I think were um you know, when I really got into poetry and developing poetry, uh, I worked in Liverpool libraries, um, and the, that is one great opportunity for any member of staff who works in libraries. Is that you can read through those those library holdings. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, calling in books from other branches, and mm -hmm. um, that that was really great. And then I moved to London, worked for Westminster libraries, 
um, which is very different from Liverpool and very different from South Bank. But I've had an opportunity to see how libraries are embedded in different communities and how they respond and change to what communities want from them. Um, but, you know, of all those libraries, the National Poetry Library has been, you know, the most significant to me. I've been here for 20 years. Um, you know, I've, I've seen the collection grow and develop. I've met so many poets from around the UK and, be, and around the world. Um, I had the opportunity to bring poetry out of the, the walls and into different spaces with different art forms. Um, and I'm still being shaped by, by, by this library now. I definitely saw that moment happen um, when I was working in a, in a certain library. Um, a, a child kind of grabbing piles of books off the shelves and uh, the parent kind of trying to dampen the expectations saying you can't take all of these home you only have to, you can only pick a couple and then turning to me and saying oh how many can we take and I was like you can have 20 and she was like oh okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was almost not what she wanted yeah, to hear because yeah. she had then had to turn around and say yeah, yeah take as many as you can yeah, carry yeah, yeah. Um, yeah there is something really liberating about that definitely So there we have it. Thank you to Chris McCabe for joining me on this episode of the show. You can find Chris on Twitter at Macabio, that's M-C-C-A-B-I-O. And you can find the National Poetry Library at National at Nat Poetry Lib. This series is being released as part of the Sutton Steams Ahead program, an exciting series of work and events to explore the relationship between art and science. There's a whole range of things happening as part of Sutton Steams Ahead including a short film that you can watch now and a street fair on the 1st of July, both of which you can find out more about at steamsahead.sutton.gov.uk. You can find out about upcoming events on the Sutton Cultural Services Eventbrite page and on our social media channels, Sutton Libraries on Instagram and Twitter and Sutton Libraries London on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>